Hi, I'm Ashley Nichols. I'm Casey Boyd-Swan. And this is the Growing Democracy Podcast, a space for citizens, experts, and advocates to create community together. Each week, we invite a guest to talk about civic engagement, governance, and how to grow our democracy. This episode is part of our series on the power of political and civic engagement. We're talking with local elected officials, public officials, community activists to learn more about what civic and political engagement mean to them and how they are involved in their communities. And this week, we're talking a little bit more about education, um, that kind of element of it. Yeah, I mean, I think that oftentimes, right, we, we think about communities as this the places that we live in, right? Or the groups that we interact with. And as as academics, I think for you and I, it's pretty natural to think about part of our community is the classroom community, right? And how that's also a space for talking about political and civic engagement. Yeah, absolutely. And I think what I really appreciate about this episode is also how our own identities and the places that we grew up um, and the spaces that we grew up in shape how we come to the classroom and how we have conversations around civic and political engagement. Absolutely. Uh, Whether that's just that we've had some divergent experiences from the students that we encounter and we're able to kind of share that with them or a world that they may not have been exposed to. Uh, or if it's just, you know, that we have a, a different perspective because of the communities in which we were raised uh, that that shares kind of like opens up and broadens the scope with which that they can understand a certain topic or issue. Yeah. So um, we're really excited to have with us today, Jamie Levine Daniel. We are super excited today to have with us Jamie Levine Daniel. Uh, She is a assistant professor at the Paul H. O'Neill School of Public and Environmental Affairs at IUPUI in Indianapolis. Uh, Long title, but awesome place to work. Uh, She grew up in the suburbs of Cleveland on the east side and got a BA in in international relations and Jewish studies from American University in Washington, D.C., Almost her entire family went to Ohio State, but after vowing not to attend for undergrad, she spent eight years pursuing two degrees there, an MBA from the Fisher College of Business and a PhD in public policy and management from the Glenn College of Public Affairs. Her research focuses on the intersection between nonprofit resource acquisition and service delivery, and she is passionate about teaching public affairs and nonprofit theory and management through a critical lens. We're very excited to have you here today. I'm happy to be here. Fantastic. So we will always want to start by, after giving that wonderful bio, the opportunity for you to kind of tell us a little bit more about yourself that isn't that scripted piece um, that we always put out there to the world. So, you know, a little bit more about your research, maybe some of your civic engagement work and, uh, of course, your life in Northeast Ohio. Sure. Um, yeah, listening to a bio being read is super awkward. So, um, <laughs> you know, like, like I said, I grew up in, in Cleveland or outside of Cleveland. Um, and I grew up in, in the Jewish community, which was, um, I, I didn't realize how strong the community is and was and how many institutions there are, because I just, that's like what I knew, right? And so I was growing up and, and there was always, um, so one of the Jewish values is tikkun olam, which is to, to repair the world. And so being engaged um, 
you know, giving stock at giving charity, which actually is rooted in righteousness, um, not not charity, but that's a whole other conversation. Um, but these concepts of caring for others, being involved in your community at a local, national, global level, these were just sort of things that we just did. Like I didn't know, this is just like how I grew up, right? Um, and I, I remember going to um, polling places with, with my parents and pulling the lever when that was a thing before it was like a screen. You know, so it, it wasn't it wasn't really, like I didn't have a, an aha moment. It's just kind of what we did and what we talked about and, and values that, that I grew up with um, that I re- didn't realize how foundational and fundamental they were. And in terms of teaching, um, you know, one of my main things is like, I, I love teaching. Um, and I think that what I teach is super relevant. Like, I don't care if my students at the end of the day can't give me a solid definition of what public affairs are, because like lots of scholars can't do that, right? But, and I, I have books, I can look it up. But are they taking the concepts that that we talk about and understanding, like, my students, I teach a lot of intro classes, so they may never work for public organizations or nonprofit organizations, especially the undergrads I teach, but they're going to be citizens in a neighborhood, in a city, in a state, in a in an area. So, so the ability to, well, first of all, we're all affected by policy, right? And, and that shapes our daily life. Um, and so the, they need to know and care about what I'm teaching because they, they need to know how to be involved and why they should be involved and why they should care, even if it's not, doesn't end up, they don't get paychecks for it. Right. So I, I'm really curious about this. Um, my, my aunt is also from Northeast Ohio, and she also grew up in a Jewish community. Is there something about Northeast Ohio and your experiences and the communities and the networks there that really drew you to ask questions about right democracy or, or just the governing process in general? Probably. But I think because, I just, again, I grew up with it, it was like the air, right, or in, in the water that, that I couldn't, I can't go back and point to it was this thing or that moment. But in terms of having, you know, an awareness of, of life outside of Lindhurst, Ohio or University Heights, Ohio, the places that I, that I grew up, um, you know, there were conversations about Israel that was always at the table, it, whether, you know, it was with family or with friends youth group, whatever. Um, but we also, you know, we heard about Russian Jewry and, and, and Ethiopian Jewry. And, and so like, there was this, even I didn't totally understand it when I was what, like eight or 10, there was, there were, these themes were sort of present, um, and being talked about whether I was part of those conversations or not. And, and that may be, I've never really thought of it so connected in this way or so intentionally in this way, but that it may just be reflective of, the nature of the, the the Jewish the civic institutions in the Jewish community, um, you know, because it, it is a very strong community and it's a very the institutions are strong and it's very well connected. So everything from day schools to synagogues to um, communities that you know workmen's circle or Jewish family services, the Federation. There's all that I don't I can't think of an aspect of my life growing up that doesn't that I wasn't connected to or benefiting from these institutional services in some way. Although I probably didn't know it when I was 10. Yeah, absolutely. I've been recently reading some work by Hari Han that says that like we become politicized in these ways that we're not always very aware of. But then there's this triggering moment that mobilizes us to action, to take action. And and so I kind of wanted to ask, and this is kind of jumping in here too, but is there a moment that you were like, this is the work that I'm going to do? Like I'm going to do work that's centered on civic and political engagement or democracy and governance, that, that kind of mobilized you 
to, to tackle it, whether that was through your teaching or through your research or whatever it is? I think there were, it's a great question. I think there were a couple of points. One is I inherited a class uh, while I was a grad student at Ohio State that is essentially the intro to public affairs class that I'm still teaching now at IUPUI. And the person that I inherited it from had On Democracy by Dahl on the syllabus. This was for undergrads, but he had On Democracy on the syllabus. And that got me thinking, and, and this is still the framing that I use for the class today, that we are ostensibly, or name at least, a democracy, right? And so that is the context in which our government operates. So we need to understand that context uh, and Dahl has a nice layout where he talks about here are the characteristics and then here are the, the institutions that you need to manifest those characteristics. And those large scale institutions shape and contribute to the growth of government. And then here's how our government operates and how policy gets made within that. And usually I'm mapping that out on the big whiteboard in, in my classroom. Um, I even have like I use a dot cam on a, and a whiteboard now and like write it out for my classes still. Because to me, that it's a it's a flow and a visual that is like, here's where we're starting and here's where we're going by the end of class. And we fill in details as we go. So seeing that was like an aha moment, reading that, seeing that and and taking ownership of the class was an aha moment um, of like why students should care and why this is important and and the connection. And I think uh, I've just only gotten (laughs) more vocal about it um, since. And I think, you know, you can't look at what's going on and you can't look at a, a global pandemic well, maybe others can. I can't look at what's going on in the world at, at a global pandemic, at, at you know social justice uprisings and, and, and anti-racism work and not connect it to what's going on and not look at it through this lens of democracy and institutions, both from a how did we get here point, what's working, what's failing, and also how do we move forward? I love that. And, and I think it's it's a really powerful way of recognizing that those aha moments happen in lots of different spaces. And so I personally love that it was kind of in that that kind of classroom setting. Has your approach to cl- the classroom changed over time, you know, mm-hmm. in terms of how you see yourself in your role? You kind of alluded to it, but it's just curious oh, yeah. um, what that looks like now. <laughs> That's such an interesting question. And and Ashley, especially, you probably won't be surprised by this answer since you, you follow me on Twitter and know some of my other work. So part of this was figuring out who I am and how to navigate that in the classroom. I think, you know, as as, as women, that, that carries some stuff with it in, in the classroom and all of that. Obviously, I'm Jewish. It came out in the first 37 seconds of this interview. I live in Indiana, in case that wasn't clear. It's an interesting place to be a Jew. And to be a liberal woman. So so figuring out how to navigate this, especially in a classroom where I don't want to alienate students who are trying to learn the process and figure out why this matters to them. Like, I don't care who they're voting for. I want them to know why voting is important. Right. I want them to understand the systems that both um, have contributed to voting and also the systems that have contributed to voter suppression. But how do I navigate that? And, And sometimes personal stories help. But how do I and I think a lot of us face this in general. How do we make it, how do we connect at a personal level without making it about us personally, right? And so one of the things that was fundamental to changing my identity in the classroom and also influenced the lens, the critical lens that I bring, because I will say I I started incorporating reframing nonprofit organizations into my nonprofit theory and management classes um, and really started to think about the role of critical theory, even in these introductory classes a couple of years ago. And so I've gone through a couple of iterations, but I would say it wasn't really until 
of last year when I really started, like the, I taught the class, you know, use a book for the first time. You're like, let me just survive this and see if it works. Uh, and then you can start to think about how to improve and engage more. So, so having taught the class three or four or five times with the book, I'm doing more with it and feel more comfortable in general. Um, but one of the things that also became a thing was um, uh, two days after the, the tree of life shooting in, in Pittsburgh in 2018, um, one of my colleagues emailed and said, or texted or whatever, she reached out to me and she said, how are you going to talk about this in your classroom? And I knew why she was asking, like, I've always been the Jew, right? Like, of course, Jamie's figured out how to talk about this. And I was like, I have no idea how I'm going to talk about this. But if I don't know, and I'm not comfortable, I can't expect my colleagues to be comfortable talking about it, um, especially colleagues. My colleague who first reached out was Jewish, but but so many of my colleagues aren't. It evolved into this into this thing about why we need to be able to talk about um, anti-Semitism in the classroom. But what came out of it was this lens of like, we need to talk about and have these difficult conversations about any sort of othering, any sort of minor, minoritized communities, because especially when it comes to the students that we're teaching, for example, and I, I started with, this is bled into research, but like it started with a teaching lens. So in that context, the, the students that we teach are, are serving increasingly diverse communities with diverse needs and unique needs. They are working with diverse staff. And I know the word diversity like sometimes gets so diluted that it loses meaning, but like nobody's a monolith, no community is a monolith. And so, you know, we need our students to be able to, to, to demonstrate cultural competence, to be able to critique um, technical rationality, to be able to shape institutions that are that should gain trust and demonstrate ethical approaches to leadership and service delivery. That, that I feel is a responsibility as someone who educates MPA and, and nonprofit management students. And so what my colleague, two colleagues and I ended up doing is writing an article that that was the entire front of it. And then it was like, okay, but now we're going to focus on language around anti-Semitism because it's an issue and there's no other resource out there like this for teaching. But again, you could swap out anti-Semitism and you could put in Islamophobia, racism, um, homophobia, sexism, all of this othering that we know are all rooted in white supremacy and very, very prevalent today. And, and this is why you need to be able to have these conversations, right? Um, and so that was that was galvanizing for me and, and being in that space. You know, it's funny because like, I like researching how nonprofits do what they do and how they get the resources they need. But like the, the anti-Semitism piece and the work that is coming from that, both related to anti-Semitism and broader, is probably some of the most important work I'll ever do. Like, who cares about earned revenue and nonprofits? I mean, I care. But like, but but in terms of what I talk about and what I'm passionate about and what I'm known for, like, that's becoming the thing. Yeah, I mean, I that I so appreciate you saying that. And I, I'm sure that your students appreciate it as well. So I'm, I'm curious to hear what you have to say about this. You know, so Ashley's in a department of political science. I'm in a department of economics. You're in school of public and environmental affairs. <laughs> I mean, we hear just nonstop. And if, you know, uh, the media and, and, and perhaps baby boomers are to be believed, <laughs> youth are, are, are apathetic and they don't care about political and civic life. And, and you can't get them to, to, to engage with anything, right? Uh, what is your experience cool. with current young students and their interest in civic engagement? Come to my class. Um, it's on Zoom. Y'all can join. I'll send you the link. And part of this is like, I have students who, we talk about public affairs as a, as a discovery major. Like that's not an intuitive thing. Again, referring back to like people not being able to define it, let alone, you know, students who are trying to figure out. So we get a lot of students who discover us, who, who find our major or, you know, it's a gen ed that, 
they take and they, they really like. I, I think there had been times where I could see where those generalizations um, come from. I actually think this is a little bit of conjecture. I don't do research in this area, but I actually think it may be that because a lot of times that younger generations, younger people are, um, and I like, we're talking about in general broad swaths, right? Putting people in boxes and then knock the boxes down. But, but to start with, I think that they do things differently. That doesn't mean that's not getting done. It just means like, all right, dude, maybe you're a boomer. You're not on TikTok. Like, you know, um, and, and so um, I think that's part of it. I, I will say um, I have had, I ask at the beginning of every semester that I teach public affairs, I just ask a series of like Likert scale one to five, how familiar are you with branches of government? The, you know, like basic civic questions. Again, some of my students are super aware and super learned about it. Some of them are, I was surprised by this initially, which is where I learned to do the survey so I could tailor my glasses. Sometimes they aren't as educated about the nuances or about like how things work, but they're overall certainly passionate. I mean, I definitely have students who just were like not whatever, they want to pass the class and it's a thing. But I have 45 students in my current PA class, uh, public affairs class. Um, I would say 75% of them show up to our weekly Zoom, which is on par better than my face-to-face class, right? <laughs> so props to them. And almost all of them have read the news or have a question about a news story that they saw or they want to talk about the environment or they're not arguing about climate change, which used to be arguments that would happen in my class, you know, is climate change happening? Those were arguments that I used to say, listen, we're not going to argue if climate change is happening. We can argue all day long about what to do about it, but we're not, right? But, but again, like, I, I asked for a hypothetical to walk through the policy process and someone said environmental and the debate was about like which aspect of environmental policy to like use as the example. We had conversations about, you know, obviously it's 2020, you can't go anywhere. Well, nobody's going anywhere, but you can't like pick up your phone or, or I mean, Spotify has ads about voting, right? Like you can't, how many of us are getting inundated with texts? you know, how many of us are doing the text banking that is the reason why people are getting an invited with text, but they're at least asking the questions about how to get involved and what to do. We had long conversations about Indiana's voter registration. Indiana is not a voter friendly state. COVID-19 is not a reason to vote absentee, um, among other things. Um, so that's a whole other barrel of monkeys. Um, but um, yeah, so I would say like, are there youth youth of today who are not interested or involved sure are there gen xers are there boomers like of course if we're going to paint a you know point a finger at, at generations but again my students who are often just kind of randomly find their way into my class um and i've got a lot of freshmen who are figuring out how to college in this in this day and age and they're like super passionate about what's going on or asking questions about why this or what what are the implications of that so yeah, that was a long-winded response, but it's because I just vehemently disagree with the premise that they're just not engaged. Yeah, I gotta say, I, I'm t- I teach public economics right now, and I just lectured on Social Security OAS- OASDI, and I was shocked with how many of my students <laughs> knew what that was. Right? <laughs> really? I, but you guys aren't even close to retirement. You know, I wonder how much of it is is just how much they are being affected by politics and by current events, by what's going on. Like I've done set classes a couple of times where I've thrown out slides and just pulled up headlines and been like, this is federalism. And this is, you know, defining the policy agenda just by headline. 
you know, a lot of times the, the example of how did public policy affect you today is like something about potholes, right? That tends to be an example because our city is like just awful with the potholes. There's a whole pothole like re reporter. That's actually one of the ways where we talk about civic engagement usually is like you may never have written your house you know, your local state representatives, but like how many of you have reported a pothole in your neighborhood, right? And so, so like potholes aren't sexy and like everyone deals with them in the winter, but that tends to be the example until spring happened and people are like, oh, now I'm stuck inside my house. And then we talk about like, you know, how do you define a policy problem? Well, if you define, define the pandemic as a health issue, then your solutions might preclude the economic, like the thing that helps health depresses the economy and vice versa. So I think it's, it's super easy for good or for bad to, to point out why they should know this stuff and why they're like, I like to say that I, I like my classes to help explain what's going on in the real world. And I like the real world to be able to explain what we're reading and learning and studying about in class. Uh, but the like fire hose of relevance is a little bit wild right now. Oh yeah, absolutely. <laughs> um, and I, I couldn't agree more. I mean, I, I teach political science students. So I think that by the time they're um, getting into my upper level classes, like, I mean, these are people who are consider themselves politicized, right? Like they love yeah. politics. Um, but even that thinking about all the different, one of the, we just had a recent conversation about all the different ways that they're engaged that we often in political science don't capture. Right. And, and to me, it was such a rich discussion. And so I really appreciate that. But this works hard. So you talked about the fire hose of information. Everything is changing. Everything is salient. Like, um, how do we? How do you stay motivated to do this work? Whether it's your research or your teaching or your yeah. civic work. Some of it is uh, like I don't try to finalize my slides or examples until the morning of class, and part of that is a, a luxury that I've taught this class so many times that I kind of have a sense of what, what, what are the big topics or concepts I want to teach. So I don't even bother to put pictures on slides until the morning of, and even then sometimes they might be out of date by the time I teach at noon or by the time I teach at six on a, on a Tuesday. Um, so some of that is just like knowing that like, it's gonna, you know, just like, just plan for class prep on Thursday at 10 a.m., right? Or on Tuesday at 2 p.m. or whatever it is. Some of this stuff is so, we're working on another, my colleagues and I um, are working on another piece. There was some problematic research that came out that I'm not going to name check right now because that wouldn't be fair. But but there was a flaw in the design and some things got overlooked that have to reflect um, some unconscious biases. And so we're writing a, a piece in, in response to this. But as we've said, and we said it about writing the first anti-Semitism article, this racial justice work or this anti-bias uh, anti work, that all this stuff, um, it's it's timely but timeless. So like, yeah, we should be working on it, but if we need to step away for a day or for a week, like it's okay because it'll, it'll, for better or for worse, it'll still be relevant next week, next month. Um, and so so there's something to that that has its own weight. And I think some of it is just knowing, like when I was in the, in the, the throes of writing the first anti-Semitism piece, you know, there were nights I'd just be like, I'm, I'm not going to be able to do anything else after this. It's exhausting. Um, but the other thing is I have a six-year-old and I... Um, I don't remember having conversations like this uh, with with my family. And again, part of that might just be because like some of this was in the air, like regardless. But, you know, she sees me writing postcards. She we've talked about voting. We do a solidarity walk in our neighborhood every week. And part of that is because she asked to keep doing like we went to it a few times and then she asked to keep doing it. And it's a way to connect to, you know, she doesn't necessarily get some of the bigger picture things, but it's a way to connect 
the work where we talk about people are sometimes treated unfairly for the color of their skin. And then sometimes like, I just can't turn it off. Like she, she taught, it was just like a month and a half, two months ago, she was talking about Taiwan from Kung Fu Panda and was like, I knew he was the bad guy because he was in jail. And I was like, well, just because someone's in jail doesn't mean they're the bad guy. I mean, to be fair, this guy did bad things, but this tiger did bad things. But it was like, but people aren't, you know, just because someone's in jail doesn't mean that they've necessarily done bad things. And sometimes people are in jail because of the color of their skin, like more black people are in jail unfairly, even though they haven't necessarily done things. That's and then tied it back and said, you know, that's we happen to be getting ready to go to the solidarity walk. So I was like, so that's one of the reasons why we do this walk. Then like, had you told me the first time I saw Kung Fu Panda like 10 years ago, I'm pretty sure I never would have connected it to any sort of like anti-racism work. So I think that, you know, it's exhausting, but it's timely. And sometimes you just can't turn it off. Yeah, I, I uh, just to, you know, throw in, I have a 16 year old and I still find myself doing that. We watch <laughs> Lovecraft Country together and sparks huge conversations, right, about racism in the U.S. And it's just, it's been really uh, interesting to, to do that with her. So uh, in, in the Growing Democracy uh, Project, and, and especially in the podcast, we're really interested in the power of civic and political engagement. And so we asked all of our guests this. So we're really curious to hear what you have to say about it. From your perspective, why is it important for folks to be civically and politically engaged in their community or communities? Because they're affected by the things their civic and political leaders do. Um, So you can either passively be affected by it positively or negatively, or you can try to do something about it, or at the very least have an understanding of the forces at work in your life. You know, why is this a stop sign and not a roundabout? Why doesn't this place have a traffic light? Why are there calorie counts? Why can I not buy alcohol on on Sundays? Like all of these different things you know, at least having an understanding of the political and civil actors and, and factors and institutions can help. And then you can figure out if you want to change something, how to go about it. But sometimes I think it's really easy to just be like, well, it's too big and I can't make a change. But if you can find your way in, there's usually some entree where like maybe you want to advocate for a certain policy or a certain politician um, or a certain campaign, like maybe you're not going to go door to door or make phone calls, but maybe you'll text bank, or maybe you'll write an anonymous postcard to somebody, or maybe you will go work the polls to help people across all the spectrum vote, right? And so, yeah, I, but if you need the like elevator pitch of that, it's because you are affected by a political and, and civil uh, civic engagement factors. So you may as well at least know what they are and then figure out if and how you want to be involved to make the changes that you want to see fundamental to our goals with this project. (laughs) And so you already referenced some of the ways that people can be civically and politically engaged as individuals, as collectives, you know, attending solidarity marches, writing postcards. Um, We just uh, recently did a virtual webinar on the op-ed project, or not on the op-ed project, but on writing op-eds and reference the op-ed project. And, you know, one of the conversations we were having is the op-ed used has, has often been perceived as a tool for civic and political engagement in the sense that you can um, ground your interests and values or have a call to action uh, for a broader audience through the news media. Mm-hmm. But the changing nature of the news media means that we have to think about things differently. We have to think about different approaches. So from your perspective... Well, um, I want to push back on that just a little bit yeah, first. Yeah. 
Because I think overall, yes, but especially when we're thinking about like our traditional political actors like Congress, right? Their systems have not caught up. So there's, I mean, like faxes count. Like, so, okay. So this gets back to understanding the wonkiness that goes on to behind the scenes, right? And so to get a gauge of how constituents feel, phone calls resonate. Like when you call your rep, that you're speaking to a staffer, right? But they're going to take down who you are, where you live, and and what your stance is on that the issue about which you're calling. Faxes also count toward that weighing that political opinion. Emails don't yet, but like who has a fax machine anymore, right? I I asked my students had any of them seen a fax machine or sent a fax a fax, and now IUPUI has we have some traditional like 18 year old students and then we have older students as well. So so there were, I I had more who had sent a fax than I expected. But, you know, so and similarly, um, op-eds count. So just starting from a traditional point of view, op-eds kind of do the same thing because the staffer is going to be looking through the daily, you know, local newspaper and maybe the national newspaper and seeing if constituents are making their opinions known. So I do want to say it's not I mean, things are definitely changing and the landscape is definitely changing and the weight that's given. But in terms of like traditional structures, some of those things still matter very, very much. I will also yeah. chime in that there is actually an app that will um, send a fax for you. So you yep, just text. Like, yep. <laughs> yep. So, I mean, they, they at least have somehow technologically advanced this process of faxing, but you're right. It is kind yep. of odd how old fashioned that is now. I just, it's such an interesting thing, right? Like, so that the, the, the tech, I mean, I feel like it, I'm not going to out my age, but I definitely feel like I'm in that <laughs> box of, I, I know the older tools and also know many, but not all of the newer mm-hmm. tools. But so my, my, my question is maybe just even broader. You know, what do you see as the future of political and civic engagement? Like where do, what, what do we want to do now and in the future in terms of mobilizing people, organizing people and getting as many people engaged in, uh, in the political, their political and civic life as possible? If any of my students end up listening to this, they're going to be surprised it took until 30 minutes in for me to say it depends, because that's usually, you know, the answer in my classroom. But I, but I think it really does depend. And, and given the sort of the plethora of tools out there, it's almost that I think of it as a matrix. I think, do you care about something as an individual? Like, let's take voting, for example, right? At an individual level, you can make sure that you're registered to vote. And if you're registered to vote, you can make your voting plan. And, you know, especially most of us might... I would, I would say at least for every election I've ever voted in, I've voted on election day, except for one, when I was going to be out of town two years ago, I voted early, but it never, but that was the only reason why it crossed my mind to do that. Right. And so, and then I voted by mail um, in March because we were, or in June, whenever our primary was moved, I don't time, whatever, but I voted by mail because I had that option because we were under stay at home orders. And the other day I voted, um, or last week I voted, it took me two hours in line. And that was two and a half weeks out of an, three weeks almost before an election, right? So, so make sure you're at a, as an individual level, um, are you registered to vote? And are, have, in an election year, on an election election season, have you figured out how you're voting? That might be the extent, right? Maybe you can't even register to vote. You're for whatever. You're young. You're not assistant. Whatever it is, uh, you don't have the right documentation, depending on your state. So, but can you help others register to vote or can you go to a local school board meeting or a local council meeting or sign a petition in your neighborhood, right? So there's individual level actions and then there's collective actions, both in formal, like formalized institutions and also sort of in social grassroots 
social movements. So what kind of change do you want to see? If you want to do something that's more on the collective level, are you trying to influence a policy? There's for everything that you are interested in, there's a way to make your voice known. Um, and I think the, that the, the wide variety of options out there are there to take advantage of, you know, whatever your skills are and whatever your interests are and whatever you're like, if you're comfortable talking to people, like go knock on doors. I mean, in a non-covered world. You know, if you're comfortable talking to people, phone bang. Um, I do think that the important, so it's sort of less about what you want to do because I, or what the landscape looks like. I think it's just so varied that you can find yourself on that matrix of individual and collective action and sort of figure out what that action looks like because you can figure out a way to be involved somehow at any level. What I do question is the sustained levels of activity. Like, obviously, we have seen wild levels of activity, right? Like I think Houston's like hit its early voting total or Harris County has hit its early voting total. Like I said, I was in line for two hours that like, well, to be fair, I was in line for an hour and 45 minutes. And then I realized I hadn't researched judges. So 15 minutes was me looking at, at my phone, but like, still, I've never seen lines like that three weeks out. But what happens regardless of the election results, what happens on November 4th? What happens next year, what happens in two years, what happens in 10 years. There's been a lot of erosion of, of democratic institutions. There's been voter suppression. There's been a lot of, you know, outside factors shaping elections. It took a while to get court decisions and whatnot. It took sort of years and decades to get to this point. The work to undo some of the, the harms is also going to take years and decades. So I think that that is actually the challenge for civic engagement is is finding a way to keep people engaged even and and by the way civic engagement whether we're talking about like with a political focus or an anti-racism focus or, or you know whatever the focus is that there's going to be flare-ups there's going to be hashtags there's going to be names to say there's going to be reasons that people get really passionate about it but what happens when the smoke clears what happens right and the change still has to be made and we still have to make that slog so i think that's actually the pressing question so I, yeah, I mean, I, and this is, I think Ashley and I've said this a million and a half times, like voting is, it is fundamental, but there's so much more and you can do these things with just, you know, everyday kind of commitment to the things that you're really passionate about. So we appreciate you saying that. Is there anything that you want to add that we didn't get to any words of wisdom for our listeners? I think a fundamental understanding of what is going on is a realization of how everything is connected. Like, I think even in terms of your podcast where you had themes of civic engagement and, and responding to COVID, and I feel like there was a third thing and then I'm now completely- Filling the gap. <laughs> Filling the gap, thank you, right? Like, I, I was thinking this morning about how even those things, like for me, those things are connected because I'm directly teaching classes that are relevant to this topic, but I'm teaching online because of, of a response to COVID-19. And I'm teaching students who, you know, if their dorms close, they might not have a place to go back to, right? And if the dorms close, it's because of reaction to, to, to COVID-19. And um, so so the colleges are, are both exacerbating and sort of addressing the gaps in, in this area. I think that's one small example that's really like relevant to, to your podcast. But, you know, whatever you're, whatever you're trying to figure out, if it's a, a problem that you're passionate, a policy problem you're passionate about or an issue, like, it's all connected. So understanding the role that civic engagement in play is understanding what it means to say political institutions or civic institutions, like, and, and how they affect policy and how you can use these tools or the tools offered through these institutions to affect policy um, is, is really critical because it really is all connected. We couldn't agree more. <laughs> 
Jamie, we thank you really so much. appreciate having you on. <laughs> Do it now. Jamie, thank you so much for joining us. It was a real pleasure having you on. Yeah, this is super fun. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to the Growing Democracy Podcast. I'm Casey Boyd-Swan, and my co-host is Ashley Nichols. Our podcast is edited by Jeremy Demery at Golden Ox Studio right here in Cleveland, Ohio, and supported by the American Political Science Association. If you like our show and want to know more, check out our website, growingdemocracyoh.org. Join us next time when we continue this conversation about political and civic engagement. And if you haven't yet, be sure to vote.